The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you uh, take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we are going to start reading at verse 1, and this is the living and abiding Word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, Your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the reading of God's holy word. So Christmas is about a promise made and a promise kept. Christmas is about a miracle. A miracle that not only changed the world, but fulfilled what the world was all about. Christmas is about a mystery. It's about redemption. It's about the beginning of the beginning. And it's about the end of all things. Christmas is about a king and a savior and a Lord. And so we hear these words echoing from scripture. Behold, the virgin shall bear a son 
and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We hear these words, unto unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. We hear these words, I bring you good news of great joy for all the peoples that today in the city of David is born for you, Christ the Lord. Christmas is about salvation And you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. I love Christmas. I do. You know, it's good for us to be reminded of things, isn't it? The Lord's Supper... It's a continual reminder to us that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now, it is amazing. Actually, it's a reflection of how bad our memories are that Jesus would have to give us something to remember such a great and glorious gift. In some ways, I look at the Christmas season as a time to think about the incarnation, to think about what God did sending his own son into this world. And so today, what we're going to do, we don't have an afternoon service, so we're going to start in Genesis, make our way all the way to the book of Revelation. (laughs) We're going to look at the Genesis of Christmas. We're going to start, of course, in the book of Genesis. So when you think about the genesis of Christmas, of course, it's a play on words, but as you think about the genesis of Christmas, really what you end up having is you end up having three, indeed four, acts. You end up having a drama that unfolds for us from Genesis to Revelation in these four acts. And what is amazing is that the first three acts are all right there in the first three chapters of Genesis. Act one, of course, is creation. Act two ends up being the fall. Act three is redemption. Act four, of course, is the consummation of a new creation. And what I want to say about about these four acts, we'll look at the first three today. is that it really is the greatest story ever told. You know, you were, you were wired for story. Have you ever stopped to consider the fact that we love stories? 
We love stories that have heroes and villains and good and evil. And we love stories that have a plot. And we love stories that have a twist. And we love stories that are full of tragedy and yet also triumph. We love stories about redemption, about, about rags to riches. And of course, we love stories about happily ever after. Do you know why you love those stories? Because they are simply echoes in your own soul of the greatest story ever told. Do you know why some of you like Lord of the Rings? It's because it's an echo of the greatest story ever told. And so what we're going to do is we're going to cover Act 1, which is creation. And in Genesis 1 through 3, like I said, we have Acts 1, 2, and then actually a clue that leads us to Act 3. And so you have um, these three wonderful acts, creation, fall, and redemption. And so the creation is described for us in Genesis 1 and 2. And we're not going to look at the whole thing. Let me just say that as you read Genesis 1 and 2, what you are struck with, what you should be struck with, is that you have an unrivaled sovereign creator who speaks the world into existence and then orders it according to his wisdom. That's way better than just goo that ends up having just an incredible winning streak of positive mutations, like millions and millions of years, right? This is, this is a glorious opening to a book that simply tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then out of the power of his own word to bring all things into existence, he begins to order according to each day, first five days of creation, God actually pronounces at the end of each day, he pronounced it good. What was it that was good? It wasn't, let's say, the environment in and of itself. What was good about the creation is that it was a reflection of the glory of God. It wasn't just intrinsically good. It was good in that it reflected the wisdom, the power, and the glory of the creator. And then on the sixth day, he makes man, and he pronounces on that day that it was very good. And so you have creation, and then you have the sixth day, the pinnacle of God's creation, in which he creates man as male and female. And God says it's very good. By the way, it's only a human being that's made in God's image and likeness. It's only a human being that actually bears the dignity of the image of God. And so the creation of man as male and female is the crown of God's creation. God creates then after that sixth day, he institutes marriage. He gives Adam a job. The narrative actually ends with this blissful state of Adam and Eve, of man and woman living in harmony with each other and with God. 
their creator. And as you look at those first two chapters of the book of Genesis, what you realize is that not only is Eden beautiful, not only is Eden paradise, but it is in Eden that God himself is now dwelling with his son and his daughter as they themselves dwell in harmony. And in Genesis 1 and 2, life is exactly as it should be. I don't know how long it took for Satan to appear in the garden, but you move from chapter 2 and the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. There was an openness, there was a transparency, there was a unity, there was a harmony, there was a beauty in their relationship. And then as you move to act two, to the fall, you end up having this rebellion. And as we read, the serpent comes into the garden. And what does the serpent do? The serpent twists God's word, challenges God's goodness, and denies God's judgment. You shall not die. And so the man and the woman disobey God's command. Now I have to say something about this because um, it's striking to me. The serpent talks to the woman. The woman then offers the fruit to the man. And here the text says he was with her. The technical Hebrew term for that is idiot. Okay? Now, what ends up happening is Adam and Eve, that, that, that temptation, God knows that in the day that you eat, you'll be like him knowing good from evil. And so, so the man and the woman, instead of trusting in God and his wisdom to know good and evil, actually take upon themselves the knowledge of good and evil by eating the tree, uh, from the tree. And they thought that they were going to gain a knowledge that they did not have, a knowledge which God was holding back from them. And they got knowledge, all right. It was not the knowledge of the way that an oncologist understands cancer. It was the knowledge of the way that a cancer patient understands cancer. Instead of being like God... They opened up their soul and there was this immediate global consequence. They're, they're alienated from God. Okay. The idea that, that somehow that they're walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they're meeting with God and they're communing with God. But on that day after they ate, they were alienated from God. They hid themselves from God, but they were also alienated from one another. So that, that vertical alienation immediately impacted the horizontal alienation. And what Adam did is he brought sin and death into the world. And Adam's sin ends up bringing judgment on the world. The old English poet John Donne wrote these words. He said, Adam sinned and I suffer. 
I forfeited before I had any possession or could claim any interest. I had a punishment before I had a being. And God was displeased with me before I was I. I was built up scarce 50 years ago in my mother's womb, and I was cast down thousands of years ago in Adam's loins. I was born in the last age of the world, but died in the first. How and how unjustly, how and how justly do we cry out against a man who sold a town or sold an army, but Adam sold the world. As a result of what Adam does in the garden, we're all born under sin. We are all born in sin. And we're all born in rebellion against God. You do get that, right? Under sin, in sin, and therefore against God. Blas Pascal wrote, he said, what a chimera. Chimera is an old word for a monster that's made up of contorted, distorted, incongruous parts. What a chimera then is man. What a novelty. What a monster. What a chaos. What a contradiction. What a prodigy. Judge of all things. Imbecilic worm of the earth. Depository of truth. A sink of uncertainty and error. The glory and the scum of the universe. And so at the end of that second act of the fall, Adam and Eve and all of us are now as bad off as we could possibly be. In a sense, you you cannot imagine a world that was worse than the day that Adam committed mass murder of the entire human race. That's the somber note, is it not? And it is it is in that very context that that God comes and he's 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 looking as it were for his children and he knew where they were by the way these questions are not God trying to get information when you look at your kid and you go what did you do you know exactly what they did what you want them to do is tell you what they did and then when they say uh Then you go into a memory retrieval program. So when God says, where are you? It's not as if he says, oh my goodness, I've lost Adam. When he said, who told you you were naked? It's not like he's saying, did you see it on the internet? He's, he's drawing out from his, from his children. And so Adam, of course, in this, in this stroke of genius, says, notice, the woman, okay, so fault number one goes to Eve, the woman whom you gave me. 
So he's blaming not only the woman, he's also blaming, he's blaming God. And so God, you know, God is so patient. You see this in our Lord Jesus in the gospels where the the disciples give the dumbest answers and Jesus doesn't just say, that's the dumbest answer I've ever heard. He's patient with his people. And so then he moves to the woman and the woman just says, the serpent. And it is in that context that God pronounces a word of judgment against the serpent. But it is in that word of condemnation against the serpent that we have our salvation. The condemnation against the devil is the salvation of Adam and Eve and God's people. And so Satan's condemnation, our salvation. And so God then says these words. And if you, if you just read them and you don't have, you don't have any imagination and you're just, you're just dull, then you think, oh, this is why I'm afraid of snakes. I don't want to miss that, dismiss that altogether because I think that people who like snakes are weird. (laughs) Moving on, this is what God says. I'm going to put enmity, I'm going to put conflict between the serpent and the woman. Literally, between your seed, serpent, and her seed. And so in that very statement of what what theologians have now called for a couple millennia, the first evangelical promise or the first gospel promise, what is happening is that God is now telling the serpent, and thus, by the way, Adam and Eve who who are standing there, there's going to be a cosmic battle. There's going to be a battle between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And in fact, it would be that battle that would end up unfolding throughout all of redemptive history. By the way, when you move over to Genesis chapter 4 and you have the conflict between Cain and Abel, what are you seeing? You're seeing the cosmic battle play itself out in the very next chapter. And that, that cosmic battle goes on and on and on. Then you get to the book of the Revelation, and the book of the Revelation gives us a, a picture of what that cosmic battle is really all about. And that is that you have Satan who is opposed to the woman, and he stands there as she's about to give birth to the male child. He's about ready to devour that male child, right? So this is the battle, And of course, God delivers that male child, which is none other than, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. He ascends into heaven. And then from there on out, there is this continual battle between between the woman and her children and uh, Satan and the servants of Satan. And so between your seed and her seed, there's going to be this cosmic battle. And then you end up having this this amazing statement, he shall bruise you on the head. So what happens in the text is is that you move from the plural idea to now the singular idea, seed of the woman, plural, but now move to he, singular. Seed of the woman, singular, is going to crush your head, Devil, the shift is amazing. 
The idea, by the way, of, of, of having your head bruised or crushed is that it is a fatal blow. In a very real sense, this part of the promise, which is the word of condemnation to Satan, but the word of salvation to God's people is this, is that he is going to actually, the seed of the woman is going to tread on the head of the serpent and overthrow Satan's power and Satan's works. And this is exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ says right before he's about to go to the cross. He says the prince of this world is about to be overthrown. And notice... By the way, pay attention. When people get their heads smashed in the Bible, there's a lot of head smashing, by the way. This is why little boys love the Bible, right? Swords and fighting and crushing heads. Every time a head is crushed, it's an echo of God destroying his people's enemy. And so, seed of the woman is going to do what? Going to crush the head of the serpent. But then notice, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so, get the, get the, um, the, the, the physics of it right, if that's the right word. I don't know anything about science. Is that the right word, Dina? Never mind. Okay, so, foot, head. If that happens... Who's on top? Now, seed of the woman is crushing the head of the serpent, but the serpent's head is bruising the heel of the seed of the woman. And so not only do you have the treading on the serpent, but you also have the seed of the woman who is hurt in the process, but unlike the blow to the head, a blow to the heel is not fatal. And so our Lord Jesus Christ endures the painful, shameful, accursed death on the cross, says Thomas Manton. And that brings us gloriously to the third act of redemption. That promise going all the way back there to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 would, be, would, would unfold throughout the history of the Old Testament. You, 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 have to have, you have to have lenses by which you see Christ as you read the Old Testament. So that story, right, the drama of creation, fall, redemption, is a drama that's played out throughout all of redemptive history. And so what that means is that although there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sub-stories going on, they ultimately are all connected to the story of a Savior who's going to overthrow the works of the evil one. And so, as that story unfolds, the covenant of promise is made to this guy, Abram, who actually was, was just an ordinary old moon worshiper. 
God calls him out of Ur the Chaldees, makes a promise to him that in his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And do you know what the Apostle Paul calls that promise made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis? In Galatians chapter 3, he, Paul says that that was actually the gospel that was promised to Abraham. And so you've got this wonderful seed promise, Abraham, through you, through your seed. And of course, you have Isaac. And then through Isaac, you have Jacob and the sons of Israel. And that seed promise continues to work its way through. And then you end up having it narrow. So it's narrowing. It goes from from the woman to Abraham to Isaac, Jacob, Israel, then to the seed of Judah, right? Genesis 49, 10. And then it goes to the seed of David. And so throughout the whole Old Testament, you have lots of seed promises, you have lots of head crushing, looking forward to the time when God would crush the head of the serpent through the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman does not remain a mystery. We are told specifically about the seed of the woman. There would be amazing prophecies. Time would fail us if we just started even to list the most straightforward, blatant ones, not to mention all of the, all of the illusions for every, by the way, for every explicit, blatant prophecy of the coming Messiah, like Micah 5.2, for instance, for every one of those, you have 10 passages that give you an illusion that kind of points you forward on a trajectory that Messiah is coming. And so you have, like we cited earlier, unto us a child is born. Born. Who's born? People are born. Humans are born. Unto us a child is born. So this means the promised child is human. He's born. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. You see, there is a slight difference there, isn't there, between born and given? The given part is God sending forth his son to be born of a woman born under the law. And so, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. What's his name? Wonderful. That word is used in Hebrew Bible only in reference to God himself. And yet this is the name of the child that's born, the son that's given. Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. The son that's born The son that's given is the child that's born. The child that's born is none other than mighty God. And that's why Isaiah says that the virgin is going to bear a son. And you're going to call him what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why would you call the virgin born son God with us? Duh, he's God with us. So in the fullness of time, 
God would bring together all of the all of the strands of those promises throughout redemptive history. And so this is the way the apostle puts it. He says, in the fullness of time. That is, in God's time. The unfolding of God's calendar. When when God had determined that he would bring all of his promises to fruition in the child that's born and the son that's given. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Why in the world do you think Paul in Galatians 4, 4 and 5 would actually say born of a woman? Who isn't born of a woman? That's like a crazy question to ask, but like today you'd have some weird answers. (laughs) But here's what we know, all right? All insanity aside, what we know is that everybody's born of a woman. But Paul's comment, born of a woman, is not simply to state the obvious Paul's point of saying born of a woman is to connect it back to the promise of Genesis 3.15 and the seed of the woman. So born of a woman, born of the law, that he might redeem those who were under the curse of the law. And so God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts now, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And so that night... In Bethlehem, when our Lord Jesus Christ is actually born, he comes into this world through the virgin's womb. What is happening is that the fullness of the times had come and God was keeping his promise. And so what we celebrate at Christmas, nothing less than the incarnation of God's Son, And it is nothing less than the climactic point of the drama of Christmas. (laughs) Think with me for a moment, if you will. A song we sang earlier, Silent Night. Lonely night. When the Son of God came into this world, on the one hand, glorious fulfillment. God's keeping his promises. They're yes and amen in his Son, Jesus Christ. And and, and in a sense, with the eyes of faith and with the, the eyes of Old Testament perspective, you look at that birth and there's something that's majestic about it, something that's glorious about it, something that's miraculous about it. But do you, do, you do understand that the night in which our Lord Jesus entered into this world, it was, it was not like they were rolling out the red carpet for the arriving king. And that little baby cried for his mama's milk. And that little baby nursed. 
And that little baby was rocked to sleep. And that little baby soiled his diapers. And that little baby was indeed fully a little baby. And yet, at the same time, that little baby who was fastened to his mama's breast drinking his milk was almighty God upholding the world by the word of his power. One writer, Gavin Ortland, he says this is so powerful. He says, the one in the manger is both swaddled tightly, yet filling the heavens, clinging to his mother, yet holding every atom in place, crying for comfort, yet sustaining the stars, sleeping among the donkeys, yet adored by angels. It certainly gives new meaning to the words that we sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Our Lord Jesus Christ in that night, in that act three, as it actually comes to fruition, fulfills the promise of salvation and fulfills the promise of a restoration with God. And it could only happen. It could not happen if God had sent an angel. It could not happen if God had only sent a son of Adam. The one he had to send had to be both God and man. And so in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. John Murray, one of my favorite writers of the 20th century, says, just listen to these words, they're almost incomprehensible. The the infinite became the finite. Now, by the way, Murray's not saying that the infinite stops being the infinite. It's not what he's saying at all. He's simply, in the incarnation, the infinite becomes the finite, the eternal and supratemporal entered time and became subject to its conditions. The immutable became the mutable. The invisible became the invisible became the visible. The creator became the created. The sustainer of all became dependent. The almighty became infirmed. All is summed up in this proposition. God became man. The incarnation, Murray goes on, says, therefore means that the Son of God took human nature into his person with the result that he is both divine and human without any impairment of the fullness of either the divine or human. He is God-man. God-man lived a perfect and sinless life. That God-man died a curse-bearing Sin, or curse bearing atonement for our sins. That God man appeared to destroy the works of the devil. That God man arose victorious over death and sin. That God man is none other than the last Adam who reverses the curse by bearing the judgment and conquering death. 
And it is God himself who kept his promises. And it is God himself who changed the world by fulfilling the very purpose for which the world was created. God brought us salvation through his son. The fourth act, which if you want to hear more about it, come Wednesday nights. We're talking about Revelation 21, 22, the new creation. Don't have time for that. Well, we should have time for that, but you'd get cranky with me. The drama of Christmas, or if you will, the genesis of Christmas, is not simply God telling us a story. This story, unlike every other story, is not only a true story, but you're in it. You're not the star. You're not even the co-star. In fact, you know the credits? Hey, you don't even get in the credits. All right? But you're in the story. You have a place in it. Why? Because the storyline of the Bible... The very thing that we're talking about today not only reveals God and his plan, but that story also reveals something about each one of us. That story that God tells that, 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 that he is, he is the, the grand writer and his son is the grand star, that story actually reveals something about me. It reveals something about you. And what it reveals is it reveals our real problem. Our real problem isn't poverty. Our real problem isn't the Democrats. Our real problem isn't anything that we want to say, that's our problem. My greatest problem is my sin. And your greatest problem is your sin. And if that's your greatest problem, your greatest need is forgiveness and reconciliation. So years ago, a London newspaper actually asked for essays to be submitted to what's wrong with the world. G.K. Chesterton entered that contest. And here was his essay on what's wrong with the world. Dear sirs, I am... Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. (laughs) The Bible draws us into the story by holding up before us our very problem which precipitates God's answer in his son. And the beautiful thing is, as the storyline continues... It doesn't just say, what's wrong with the world? You are. If that's all it said, it would be the tragedy of tragedies. But the drama goes on. The story continues. And those that the story identify as the problem 
also identify as the recipients of mercy. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You're in the story as a sinner, whether you like it or not. But you can also be written into the story as one that receives tremendous grace, mercy, and pardon from the God of all the earth. And so the drama of redemption is meant to be also your drama as you encounter the crucified, resurrected Jesus through his gospel. And so have you trusted? Have you trusted the crucified son? That baby that looks so sweet in our nativity scenes was born to live a perfect life and then die a horrible death. Have you trusted the one who came to lay down his life for his sheep? Have you trusted the one who on the third day rose again? (laughs) You do realize this is in fact the greatest story ever told. Crucified, dead, buried, raised up again, ever lives, returning one day in power and glory to judge both the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. There is no story better than that. And what I want to tell you today is that your life and everything else makes no sense apart from him. And so through him, you can have salvation. And through him, you can have purpose and meaning in life. And through him, you can be delivered from the law of sin and death. Through him, you can receive freely the gift of eternal life. We sang these words this morning. These words get me every single time we sing them. Come then to him who lies within the manger with joyful shepherds. Proclaim him as Lord. Let not the promised son remain a stranger. In reverent worship, make Christ your adored. Eternal life is theirs who would receive him. With grace and peace, their lives he will adorn. So you're here today. Maybe you're here every Lord's Day. Maybe you're here because you're out of town. I mean, I see see people that wandered off to Arizona. I see people that wandered off to Ohio. And they finally have come back home. (laughs) All right? Maybe this is not where you normally are on a Sunday morning. I want to tell you, 
that this is no accident that you're here this Sunday morning. Do not leave this place with the Son of God as a stranger. Bow the knee to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Receive him and you will have the gift of eternal life. And then, all of the sudden, the whole drama of redemption unfolding in the scriptures, we will begin to fall into place and you will realize, I have a place in the story. Let's pray. Father, we pray for those that are without Christ and without hope. Father, our hearts ache for them and yearn that they would know Jesus as the source of eternal life. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit you'd be mighty to save today. Father, we pray that on the the rest of this Christmas Eve day, that there would be conversations in homes about receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord and what it means to have eternal life and what it is to have our sins forgiven. How we thank you for the genesis of Christmas. How we thank you for the drama of redemption. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.